Good morning to you. Whoa, that was a little down. Good morning and sorry for that delay. And uh, I'm looking forward to that event this evening. Um, I didn't bring a couch. I'm sorry. We tried. We brought the kitchen sink. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, as we approach this topic this morning, it will take an act of our great God for us to appreciate you and to respond to you in the way that you want us to. I'd just like to ask you to give your grace and a special measure of the Spirit of God that we might become more, uh, more in the image of Christ, that we would become true worshipers of our glorious King. In Jesus' name, amen. Proskuno. Proskuno. Thank you. First time I heard that word, I went, what? So I played it again on my little computer. Proskuno. I said, oh, I was pronouncing it wrong. I still didn't know what I was saying. You could say it sounded like Greek to me because it was. It's the most common word in the New Testament translated worship. Proskuno. The greatest concentration of that word and the smallest number of verses is John chapter 4. The book that contains that word, the most uh, prevalent word, or the, the book that has that word used most often is the book of Revelation. Outside of those two places in the New Testament, you don't see much of that word. You see one other word translated worship. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and it's lechuro, or spiritual service of worship. Last night we talked about the glory of God, and we need to, because if we don't have a, a real firm, perhaps, grasp, or at least an, a beginning of an understanding of the glory of God, worship would, would hardly even be an afterthought, you know. But if we can see God, and if we can understand Him and His glory and what it means and all the workings of His uh, proper place and, and, of course, the protest against His glory and how He proved that He was really the one should be in that position, although He certainly didn't have to prove that, and how it's such a personal matter to Him and to you, now worship becomes sort of a, an appropriate expression, an appropriate response. And I want to show you why that is today. John chapter 4 is where we'll be. As you turn into John chapter 4, it's really important that I, uh, I give you some further ideas about the word worship. The word worship is uh, uh, thought to, to have several um, different uh, images to it, but one of the more graphic ones comes out of a, a lexicon uh, Greek dictionary that basically says um, it was the custom that uh, in ancient times when you would approach someone of greater uh, authority and power that you would actually bow yourself to the ground and in some cultures you would blow kisses to the one who was superior and you read you would bow yourself to the ground so that you would increase the distance from the crown of the head of the one who was superior and the crown of the head of the one who was inferior, so that there would be a dramatic and, and demonstrative, a, a beautiful picture of who has the greatest station, who has the greatest power and authority. And so you lower yourself, and in, as I mentioned, in some cultures, they would blow kisses to the one who is superior. 
There's one writer who says that it, in, in that regard of, of showing honor, it sort of uh, uh, comes, there's some etymology, some roots to the word that that's, uh, indicates it was like, like the dog licking the master's hand. Yeah, we have two dogs, and, and uh, one we call Lily the Licker because she can't stop. But Jack, he's a little more regal, you know, he's a little more majestic, you know. So he'll sit on our, our unfortunately, our furniture because... I don't want to get him off, and he just kind of sits there and looks Jack-like, you know. Look, yes, how are you? But Jack's a fraidy cat. He hates storms, lightning, thunder. One day, it was uh, lightning and thunder, and our door bursts open. That was Gracie. Jumps on us. It's lightning, and suddenly, the whole room lights up. And then behind her, I saw Jack sitting at the end of our bed looking at us. And then it thundered, and he and Gracie dove right towards Mom and Dad and put their heads down. The next day, I'm in the, up in the morning. Jack is up, and he wanders over, and he starts licking my hand, like saying, thank you. I needed that. I said, oh, I'll put you in the will, Okay. You see, this is the idea. This is not Jack's the idea. The point is, is there's this sort of appreciation of the one who is your master, is your Lord. And in particular, there is a, a thought of showing this kind of respect and, and affection in return. That's the idea of proscuno. So the Lord Jesus uses that term in the most unusual of circumstances. He talks to a woman who had a wrecked life, a messed up, torn up, disintegrated life. And of all the people, he was going to talk about a new concept, a new paradigm. It's with this particular lady whose life was was in shambles. I don't know what you think, but it seems to me that the Lord God loves to talk to people whose lives are in shambles and uses those lives to be true worshipers of the living God. Now, let me tell you something. I'm overqualified for that. Because my life was in shambles before I met the Savior. You too, perhaps. You too. But nonetheless, he chooses her. Now, the story goes like this, and then we'll read the text that is the focus of our paragraph. The story, if you're unfamiliar, is that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, or in that region, he had had a little bit of heat put on him. And people were a little upset, namely the Pharisees. In fact, whenever you read the New Testament, the Pharisees are always mad at the Lord Jesus, except one or two. And yet the Pharisees were, were, uh, uh, they were antagonizing him. They were twisting his words. They were, oh, it sounds like politics today. Anyway, they were just kind of manipulating the whole situation. And so they needed to get out of town. And so the Lord Jesus says to his boys, now listen, what we need to do is we, go to need, we need to get back to Galilee. But in order to get there, I want to go through Samaria. Well, that's like going from, the, you know, what is it? The frying pan to the boiling pot. I mean, it's just as hot, you know. And so what happens is, is uh, they say to him, now listen, uh, well, the implication is this. We don't really want to go through Samaria because, you know, you go through Samaria, things happen there like murder. And, you know, people, travelers, and we'd be travelers, and we would be murdered. And, you know, that, it's, it's, 
that you, you make that you get that idea because um, that was the history of going through Samaria. It's the central ridge of the country where the Samaritans lived, who date back dated back some three, four, five hundred years actually, and and they were um, a mixed breed, and and they came up with their own religion, and they only believed the Torah, and they had sacrifices on Mount Gerizim, and they are pretty much thought of as renegade, don't want to be like ethnically ruled out people. Well, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus said, you know, I, I, I must go through Samaria. The same word, I must go. God, he who worships God must worship him in spirit and truth. It's necessary for me to do this. And so he, he plans a journey with his, with his boys, his 12 men, and they, they start the trek. Now from Jerusalem, it's, it's really about a day plus walk. Today you can do it in about a half an hour. And when you get when you get up to this area of the of the world, it's it's in slight elevation, and and there's famous places. There's there's a place called Shechem or Shechem, right? There's Mount Ebal, there's Mount Gedizim, there's the Well of Sikar, right? There's all these places there, and biblically they just kind of light up on your page. And the Lord Jesus, He plans to be there, and it says it was it was a certain hour of the day. If it was the Jewish calendar or the Jewish time clock, it would have been noon. If it was the Roman, it would have been 6 p.m. But the point was, was that he planned to be at a certain place at a certain time with certain physical exhaustion and thirst. So when he asked for a drink, it wasn't a lie. It was really true. The man was thirsty. Wow. That tells you a lot about the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? I know I need to be there at this certain time, so I'm going to plan my life while I'm living in this human body to be at a certain place at a certain time so that my physical needs will, will be realistic. And when I ask for a drink, I really will need a drink. Not only that, to plan it so that he would be there when this lady goes to get water. And not only that, to plan it so that it's this particular lady that will be there. I don't know what you think about the sovereignty of God, but it's everywhere. And so he's taking his boys up there. Now, it doesn't seem like he explained this whole idea to them. They didn't know. How do I know that? (laughs) They can't figure out if he needed bread or wanted bread. But they didn't seem to know. So when they get up there, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an eating time, and, and we need some water. And, and so he says, well, why don't you fellows go in town and buy some bread? <laughs> That's like buying bread from the wrong side of the tracks. You're a bunch of Jewish guys going into the Samaritan village, and they're not too happy. So they go. And I can just see their little dust bunnies go past the one dust bunny that's coming to the well. And there's a Samaritan woman. She has no name in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure we're going to meet her. And so while she's there, she's getting her water. The Lord Jesus, who uh, was uh, unknown to her, but he was actually had the notoriety of a famous rabbi by this time in his, in his public career. He's just sitting there in classic, in classic God form. He says, I have a drink. <laughs> he goes, what are you, crazy? That's a loose translation out of the uh, Steve's standard version. It'll be out for publication this Christmas. And, 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 and she goes, uh, he goes, would you have a drink? And, and she goes, <laughs> well, well, listen, I'm not trying to be rude or anything. But you see here, you're a Jew and I'm not. And I'm a woman and you're not. And I'm a Samaritan, and, and you're not. And so what are you thinking? 
So the Lord Jesus, he dodges that. He doesn't even, he doesn't engage on that. He doesn't engage, engage in the ethnicity or the social issues. You know what he does? He goes, actually, you know, it's funny you should say that. If, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would actually ask me. I would give you living water. Now, she didn't hear the living part. She heard the water part. But she goes, really? You know, as I, as I stand right here and I'm looking at you, you don't have anything to draw from the well. I mean, you don't have a, a, a stick, a rope, a bucket. You got nothing. And I think this part was cynical. Are you greater than our father Jacob who built this well? Huh? The Lord Jesus, he says, well, you drink this water, you'll thirst again. But you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst. But the water that I give, she'll become in you a fountain. That's like a spring of water into everlasting life. Now, clearly the Lord Jesus is speaking spiritual, right? A spring of water, a never-ending fountain that gives you constant nourishment and satisfaction. She hears nourishment, satisfaction, never come back to this well again. And she goes, I'm in. I'm in. Can I put in some money for the stock on this new venture? Because this is, I, I would love, I, you have no idea, I would love not to come out to this well every day, this time of day. Now, again, it's in Steve's standard version. You have to read it closely. The woman said, sir, this is in verse 15. Give me this water that I might not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said, well, well I want you to go call your husband. Now, it's in the singular. Go call your husband. She's, she's clever. Oh, oh, I don't have a husband. <laughs> no. Jesus, you know, did you just notice how he doesn't take these rabbit trails? You know, he doesn't, when, when she asked, uh, uh, said that, uh, uh, when she talked about um, uh, who you are, he didn't go down that social thing. When, when he responded about living water and she said, oh, I'd like to have that so I don't have to come back. He didn't take that rabbit trail of, about, well, I'm not talking about, you know, physical water. He, he just, he just took it as it went and redirected her gently back to the, the real point. And so here he takes what seems to me an obtuse question. We weren't even talking about her family, and now he brings up her family, but it's for a purpose. And he says, well, oh, why don't you go call your husband? We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about this business venture with your husband. She goes, oh, I don't have one. And Jesus, and he says, you're right. You don't have one. You've had five. And in fact, the man you're living with right now is not your husband. He would be what we call your boyfriend. Wow. That's a messed up life, isn't it? Five different men, five different sets of children, five different blended families. And then I can't seem to find a man that works for me. I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of call it quits on that legal stuff, and we're just going to live together just in case it doesn't work out. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like in the last 2,000 years, nothing's really changed? Because that's exactly the legacy, not only of the world, but some of our own lives, right? And this is the person that seems to be searching for something in which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chooses 
to teach a paradigm that is heretofore yet to be taught. That speaks, doesn't it? Because here we are, our lives, we come to, this, uh, to the world of Christianity, we come to this conference, and, and you know, our lives have, have a history of being messed up. Our lives have a history of being in shambles. Our lives have a, have a, a tone of, of being torn apart, maybe by you, maybe by someone else. Maybe you've been ravaged in some awful way. Maybe you've just had a history of a broken home, and you were the child in it, and your heart is torn asunder. Maybe you your life has been ravaged by some sort of drug or alcohol or some sort of habit, and yet it is God, the God of the universe, who wants to have a personal conversation with you about something that will change everything. It's called wisdom. That's how God does stuff. I'd never do it like that. You know, when I used to be on the playground baseball team, we'd, we'd try to pick the best athletes first. We wouldn't go to the worst ones. Hey, you who can't play and can't throw, why don't you come over here? You ever do that? No, no. I was the guy that couldn't play or throw. I got last. That's how I know that. No, the Lord, the Lord God, when he, when he wants to, to put together a program, he picks the weak and the base and the things that are not to confound the things that are. I, I tell you that, I call that brilliance. Because the only way those things that are weak and base and are not, that's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, could actually do anything is because it has to be, there is no other way that it can be except by the power of the living God. And no one would be able to mistake it. So let no one glory in the flesh. Therefore, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. As what Paul said, who was quoting Jeremiah chapter 31. So this is no mistake. This is not, oh, I just made a wrong turn at the last exit. This was strategically planned and had great forethought by the living God. Well, let's get on to the conversation. They're really, (laughs) I know what you're thinking. That's a long introduction, Stephen. We only got like 20 minutes. You're never going to make it. That's true. I'll never make it. But there's only four things I need you to remember today. All right. Number one, the phrase true worshiper. I want you to remember the word true. Number two, I want you to remember the phrase worship and spirit. Number three, I want you to remember the phrase worship and truth. And number four, I want you to remember the phrase God is seeking. Four things. All right? True worshipers, worship and spirit, worship and truth, God is seeking. By the grace of the Lord, we'll get through this. So he goes to this wrecked life, and he, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, go call, and, or uh, he begins to unravel her life. She plays the religious card, and now you can read the text, verse 19. Uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She gives him some credibility, doesn't she? She gives him some measure of um, spiritual recognition. You must be a prophet. That's bigger than a rabbi, by the way. You must be a prophet. You, why, why would she say that? Well, you just told me my whole life story and all the dirt too. And yet you're still standing here. You must be a prophet. Um, our fathers, you know, they said that we, we should uh, uh, worship on this mountain. Now she's referring to the mountain of Gedizim. Now Mount Gedizim was part of this history where, where um, uh, Moses had commanded Joshua that once you get into the land, you go to the mountains of Gedizim and Mount Ebal. And when you're there, you have 
the half of the tribes stand on Mount Ebal and half of the tribes stand on Gerizim. And I can see it because we were there and you could see this beautiful valley. It's like, a, like a amphithe- or a, a, an arena, a stadium. And you got half over here and half over there. And you on the Ebal, you, you announce the curses. And on Gerizim, you announce the blessings. And then at the very end of that whole national ceremony, which would have been a really big football stadium, you actually then take, uh, 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 you build an altar over on Mount Ebal's side where the curses are and you make a sacrifice there. It's very picturesque because on the side that you would think of the blessings, you should have a sacrifice of honor and, and homage. You actually have on the curses a sacrifice of substitution. And boy, that's like Jesus Christ who said, and it said this, and he became a curse for us. So it's appropriate that he would be on the side of the curses because that's where we are. And that's all in the backdrop of this setting with this woman with a messed up, wrecked life, a cursed life. And the Son of God, who's known as the Lamb of God, shows up on her turf, huh? I'm glad he showed up on my turf. So, she says, you, you, you know, we thought we should be worshiping here. That's, and they only believed the Torah, and they actually changed some of the Torah. They actually said that uh, it was uh, in the book of Joshua, it said it was, the, the altar was on Ebal's side. They said the altar was on Gedezim's side. Now, when we go to Israel, we go up to Mount, the top of Mount Gedezim. And at the top of Mount Gedezim, there is this little, little village there called Nablas. I remember when I was there the first time uh, we did this, I said to my a guide, I said, hey, listen, isn't that Mount Gedizim? He goes, yeah. I said, let's go to the top of that. He looks at me like, I've never done that before. So I did the same thing. I haven't either. I said, let's go. And we do. And now every time we go on the tour, we go up to Mount, top of Mount Gedizim. And what's interesting, interesting is we're the only white people up there. And as we drove this bus in these narrow streets, we all get out. And there's this 13-year-old guy. It's his birthday. He speaks English. And we said, do they still sacrifice up here? He goes, oh, yeah, every Passover. And he walked us in the city square, and we found altar after altar after altar where they sacrificed the animals, and all us Americans are going, can you believe that? Amazing. Well, this would have been the Lord Jesus. He would have been in a similar situation talking to this lady, and and the active ceremony of sacrifices was ongoing that day. And so she says, you know, we worship on this mountain. You Jews say that it's Jerusalem and the place where one ought to worship. She brings up the idea of worship, and the Lord Jesus takes that motif, that thought, and he goes, woman, believe me. You ever say that to your kids? Believe me. What is a kid supposed to remember? Don't mess with dad on this one. Right? That's what we mean. You, you, is, that, is that right, Gracie? Yeah. Yeah, Gracie's shaking her head. Absolutely. I've heard this before, Dad. Yeah. That's what we mean. We've said, listen, there's something you don't want to cross. There's something you can mark your words by. There's something you can set your watch by. And that's my words. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You know what he's saying there? In the future day, It won't be a false idea that will worship God, nor will it be the current idea that you will use to worship God. Meaning, it won't be your false ideas of of this Samaritan cult religion, nor will it be what what has been heard in Judaism as the idea of worshiping God. It will be totally different. I can't imagine this. He's talking to a lady who had a wrecked life. 
and, and, and society and, and her gender was, was despised. And yet the Lord God is saying, I want to tell you, it's not about what you used to do and it's not about what you're currently doing. It's about a totally different paradigm. And, it's, and the paradigm includes the key phrase, true worshiper. Look at what it says. For, you, for you, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is of the Jews. That's, again, a corrective statement. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is. See, he added that. Now is is an, additive, is an additive. And he says this, not only is what I'm telling you about to happen, it's happening right now. Right now. I'm bringing it into play this moment. Don't you love when the kids, and, and you're, you're giving family instruction. We were over at the Cliffords today. They have a few children. And, uh, and uh, it reminded Janet and I of the day when we had all the children and, 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 and just the, the, the talking and the, and the, you know, it's just like a, you know, and then I, oh, I miss that, you know. And uh, one of the things that you say to the kids is, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to all go ahead and get in the car. And they all still stand there. Now, you know, I remember, I don't know if you ever had to do this job. I remember I'm saying, okay, it's time to go. Nobody moves. I go, okay, let me, let me say it this way. If I say it's time to get in the car and I'm still standing here, you shouldn't be. You want to, you need to be waiting on me, not me waiting on you. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. People move it, move it, move it. John didn't do any of that, but that's what I did. The hour is coming and now is, it's his moment, take it in. And he says this, and, and that when tr- the true worshipers, now what does it mean to be a true worshiper? You know, the word true there, and it really has the idea of real, a real worshiper. That, uh, and that idea there has a connotation, and the connotation is that you are authentic authentic worshipers. What does that mean to you? It means it is possible to have the title worshiper and to be totally disingenuous and inauthentic. It's totally possible. Are you ready for this? To be fake. Now, one of the things that bothers me most is that I found my Christianity to have a healthy dose of inauthenticity. I'm just going through the motions. I'm going to the mountain. It might even be the wrong one, but I'm going and I'm faithful in it. And I got my little sacrifice. And every time that I'm supposed to make this little sacrifice, I do my little thing. And then I go back and I do my other little things, which actually totally disqualify me from being a true worshiper. I don't know about you, but that is a common phenomenon, not 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years later. That's exactly a state of the church today. And we're going through motions and we're going through activities and we're going through places and some of it's right and some of it's wrong. And yet what God does is he visits the planet and he says, I want one thing. The only thing I'm really after here is I want, I want true worshipers. I want authentic worshipers. I want worshipers who give me their heart and soul. I want worshipers who are transparent in their approach. I want worshipers who will not play this game, this awful game of saying one thing, but your heart is far from me. The Lord Jesus even quoted that. They worship me with their lips, but their heart, but their heart is far from me. There is this, there is this uh, 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 portion in Isaiah. Why don't we turn there that really exposes this. Now, I can see that 
I'm going to have to continue this message in the next hour, so don't worry. We'll have a short commercial break, and we'll come back live. But I want you to see Isaiah chapter, did I say 14? I meant chapter 1. Chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, you have an indictment laid, laid, uh, um, leveled against the people of Israel, specifically of Judah and Jerusalem. And um, in this opening statement, uh, the indictment begins. And the indictment means that he's bringing charges up against the people of what's wrong, why there is even a need to call them out. And uh, I want you to notice some of the frustration God has with a lack of true worshiper, an inauthentic worshiper. Notice this. We'll begin reading in verse um, 10. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, before I go on, the Lord Jesus, or the, the prophet just said uh, that you people act like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so now he's going to use that, that sort of statement and call them basically residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. But they're really people of Jerusalem and Judah. So that's why he says, hear the word, you rulers of Sodom. Notice he's talking about the leadership. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he's addressing all stratas of society. And he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? That would be acts of worship, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings. Did you ever read Leviticus and, and Numbers and, and, and Deuteronomy and looked at the uh, number of sacrifices they had and, and the different things you're supposed to do on different days and the uh, types of animals you were to bring and, the, and we did, you know, a quarter of an ephoth or a half? And you had to have a PhD to know all that stuff. In fact, uh, there's this wonderful little chart in the Bible Knowledge Commentary that lists it all for you. It's four pages long. They had to know it perfectly. No, you can't. Not, you, you need more of that grain this time. Not that. Not my, over, oh, oh, no, no, that's the wrong animal. You got to bring a different animal. Can you imagine that? I mean, there is ro- volumes of information, if you will, about sacrifices. And for him to say, I don't want it anymore, is an amazing statement. It had nothing to do with what he said about the sacrifices. It had everything to do with the worshiper. And he says, I don't want this anymore. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, meaning the best part of the beef. I don't delight in the blood of bulls, the most expensive one you can bring, or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? It's like the people say, well, you did. But the Lord says, no, you know, you're, not, you're, not, you're not doing it the way I wanted. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, that's the big one we talked about last night, is an abomination to me an abomination. It never was an abomination, but somehow it became awful. How did it become awful? Did God change his mind? The worshiper changed their heart. That's what happened. He says, bring no more of that. The new moons, the Sabbaths, those are the days of celebration, the calling of assemblies. Those are conferences like we have. Your new moons and your appointed feast. my soul hates That's strong language. My soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Have you ever had that moment? Oh, stop it, please. This is just too much. No more. I can't stand this anymore. I'm going crazy. That's what we say. And here God is driven to the same measure of frustrated expression. I 
can't stand this anymore. This worship, this kind of a homage, that's not what I'm after. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make uh, many prayers, I won't receive it. I will not hear your hands are full of blood. You see what he's saying? On the one hand, you fold them, but when you fold them, you're leaving blood stain on your hands because you didn't care for the widow and you didn't care for the orphan and pretty much you don't care about my justice. See what he's saying to us? Your worship, O Israelite, is fake. It's inauthentic. It's disingenuous. It's untrue. See, the Lord Jesus was introducing this new paradigm, but it was an old problem. And the old problem is that you and I, we failed to be authentic with the Lord. It's the one thing he wants. That's the one thing you want. That's the new paradigm. I want a true worshiper. Look what he says. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. See all the things that were being left undone. They had to deal with the heart of God and expressing righteousness, justice, and truth. And then he says, of all things, he says the famous verse in verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Do you hear what he's saying? I don't want this, but I want to fix it with you. And if we could come together and a moment of sensitivity and a moment of where we could actually talk, we could figure this out. And listen, what we need to figure out is that there's a new paradigm in town. And the new paradigm is that I don't want you what I don't want what you used to do. I want what we should have done all along. Would you be a true worshiper? Well, I think there's a message in that for us today. And that message is very simple. That God has stated the hour is coming and now is. When he who worships God, that God would seek a true worshiper. So that's the first phrase of our four this morning, isn't it? And the question has, is begged to be asked, am I that true worshiper? I asked myself that question. You know, when you ask yourself that kind of question, I'm actually kind of afraid of the answer. I'm afraid what's going what's to be said by the Lord, what's going to be exposed. What I found out was, if I were to actually take that hour of breaking of bread, whatever it is, ours is an hour, when we are to worship the Lord as a collective body, shouldn't be the only time, I found that out of 60 minutes... 30 of them was spent in daydreaming. That's pathetic. That is absolutely pathetic. When I tried to measure how many hours of the day that I worshiped God outside of the breaking of bread, the answer was a big fat zero. That's atrocious. I'm not a true worshiper, but yet I would call myself a worshiper of God. I'd call myself someone who understood the value of the king. No. I was lying to myself. And maybe we've been that maybe we've been doing that too. Maybe that's what we have slowly slipped into. 
Well, I would say that in our wrecked up state, mess state, our wrecked lives, the Lord Jesus would come afresh to us and meet us by this well and say to us, you know, let me, let me ask you something. Are you my true worshiper that I'm seeking? Or shall we come together and reason about this and we can come to a better and different conclusion? Maybe that's the answer. Father, we thank you for this little segment. We pray that you would bless our time as we continue all of the discussions of the day. May the Spirit of God have his way with our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.